continuing our series through the Sermon on the Mount. And um, we're, I thought it would be fun to open up with this little blog post by a guy named John Acuff. So John Acuff wrote uh, a book uh, a while back. He wrote, it was a blog. It's called Stuff Christians Like. Uh, he turned it into a book a while back. And he grew up as a pastor's kid. And he just kind of pokes fun a little bit at the Christian subculture in a good-natured way. Um, and he just nails it. And so he wrote this blog post about one of the most awkward moments in the lives of every believer. One of the most awkward moments. And he says, here it is. At church or in a small group, someone will say, I'll open us in prayer. Lisa, you close us, and everyone else, pray if you feel led. One of the most awkward moments. He says, suddenly there's an expectation. In less than a minute, that opening prayer is going to be finished, and you'll be faced with an incredibly difficult decision. Do I pray? Do I feel led? When do I pray? When is the closer going to speak up and put an end to this prayer? How do I not start praying at the same time as someone else? <laughs> right? So many questions, each fraught with danger and intrigue. And then he goes on to, to give you six people that you meet in a prayer circle. So in a prayer circle, there are six kinds of people, and he talks about them. And I just want to share a few with you today. I'm not going to do the whole blog post. But one of the people that you meet in a prayer circle is the almoster. The, the almoster is the person seating, sitting near you that is constantly on the verge of praying. You can hear them doing that little breath thing, that little exhale before you're about to speak. And you can hear it because it's loud in the deafening silence of the prayer circle. (laughs) Every time you're about to say a prayer, the almoster comes out and breathes and you stop out of courtesy. And then they don't pray. (laughs) And so you start again and a long exhale from the almoster stops you again. It's like a little dance, right? So you have the almoster. Another one that he gives is the opener. He says, you might think the closer is the one with all the power, but don't be misled. The opener is in control. In addition to choosing the closer, they also set the tone for the entire prayer circle. If they go long, people after them are going to go long. If they work in cute little jokes to the opening prayer, the people after them are more likely to be casual too. More than that, they don't need to worry about the closer or someone else cutting them off. They can pray and then relax because their work is done, (laughs) right? He talks about the rambler. This is the guy or gal that sees the chance to pray in front of people as an open microphone. A chance to not so subtly reference everything they've recently learned during their quiet time in one long rambling prayer. And there's no way to stop them unless you're married to them. If you are, you can grab their hand and give it a squeeze that says, I love you, you are good at praying, but no one wants to hear about the spiritual mysteries you've uncovered recently in the book of Joel, right? So, and then I'll share one more. He gives a bonus, the shot blocker. In basketball, when somebody on the opposing team swats your shot with their hand, preventing you from scoring, this is called shot blocking. The same thing can happen in a prayer circle. It usually looks like this. Person number one. Lord, thank you for affirming my decision to take a new job. And then the shot blocker prays. Lord, please give Danielle more patience and discernment as she looks for a new job. Help her not to rush into anything. This is the basketball equivalent of somebody blocking your shot into another state. Just as you try to send up a prayer to God, they swoop in and contradict you. Praying with others uh, can be awkward. It's kind of funny the way that he he writes that. Um, But practicing our faith together can sometimes be a little awkward. And Jesus actually 
talked about this in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. He said, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now, what I want to know is how does his command there to beware of practicing your righteousness in front of other people, how does that line up with what he said just a few verses earlier in chapter 5, verse 16? In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the same sermon by Jesus. Earlier he says, let your light shine so that others can see your good works and glorify your Father. And then a few minutes later he says, beware of practicing your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them because then you won't have any reward from your Father. So how do these two things align? Jesus is not contradicting himself. He's talking in chapter 6, not so much about what the good things you're doing, what good things you're doing, and not so much about where you're doing these good things, or even who might see you doing these good things. What he's talking about in chapter 6 is something a little deeper. He's talking about why. Why do you practice these works of righteousness? Why, uh, why are you a Christian? Why do you come to church on a Sunday morning? Why are you here? Why do we sing? Uh, why do you uh, engage in a Bible study or belong to a small group? Why do we do these things? Why are you a Christian? That's what he's getting at in Matthew chapter 6. Remember the Sermon on the Mount. His thesis is in five, chapter 5, verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. This is what we've been talking about the last two Sundays. What kind of righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees? Because you ha- your righteousness has to exceed theirs to be part of the kingdom. And what kind of righteousness is it? It is an internal righteousness of the heart. The righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees was an external righteousness of behavior management. The internal righteousness that is greater than that is a righteousness of the heart. What we've been talking about the last two Sundays is basically this. God cares more about who you are than what you do. He cares more about your heart than your behavior management techniques. Now, does that mean that God doesn't care about what we do? No, he does care very deeply about what we do. Colossians chapter 3. So put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. You used to do these things when your life was still part of this world, but now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. Don't lie to each other, for you have stripped off your old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. Clearly, God cares about what we do. But what Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount is it's more important about who you are. Because what you do is downstream from who you are. 
And if the Holy Spirit comes in and changes your heart, then over time, all of your behaviors and actions will become aligned with, it takes time, but they will align with who you are on the inside. So Jesus is saying God cares more about who you are than what you do. It's a greater righteousness, a righteousness of the heart. He brings that same idea on into chapter 6. And this is the big idea for this morning. God cares more about who you are than who others think you are. God cares more about your heart than your popularity. Whether that's popularity at school, at work, in your neighborhood, on the golf course, or in your church, right? God cares more about who you are than about who others think you are. Now, does that mean God doesn't care about who others think you are? God doesn't care about your reputation or your name in the community? No, he does. Proverbs 22, a good name is more desirable than great riches. To be esteemed is better than silver or gold. So who other people think you are is important, but God's point, Jesus' point in the Sermon on the Mount is, it's even more important who you actually are. Not just who you are on Instagram, but who you really are on Saturday afternoon when nobody else is around. God cares about who you are more than who other people think you are. That's the big idea as we go through Matthew chapter 6 today. And as we work our way through this passage, I want to talk about three words. I want to talk about the word hypocrites, I want to talk about the word reward, and I want to talk about the word father. Hypocrites, reward, and father. These words are repeated over and over and over by Jesus in this teaching. So these are three really important words. First of all is the word hypocrites. That word appears in Matthew chapter 6, verse 2. He says, Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. The hypocrites are doing this in order to be seen and praised by others. And Jesus says that applause is all the reward they will ever get for their righteous giving, right? So don't be like the hypocrites. Then in verse 5, he says, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. And then down in verse 16, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Three times he mentions hypocrites, and he says, don't be like them. Now when you hear the word hypocrites, what comes to your mind? This week, as I was reading in this passage, the very first thing I thought of is the saying, do as I say, not as I do, right? A hypocrite is somebody who pretends to be righteous and do good things, but in actuality, they don't. A hypocrite is somebody who says, you shouldn't lie to other people, but I'm going to lie to other people, right? A hypocrite is somebody who says, you should give to the poor, but I'm actually not giving anything, of my own, right? Hypocrite is somebody who says, you should uh, volunteer with your church, but I actually don't volunteer with my church, right? And we think that's a hypocrite. Do as I say, not as I do. And that's true. That is a hypocrite. But that's not the kind of hypocrite Jesus is calling out in Matthew chapter 6. He's talking about something that's much more deep, much more subtle, and much more dangerous. For Jesus, what he's saying is a hypocrite is somebody who does the right things, but for the wrong reasons. It's not just somebody who who says, go do this even though I'm not going to. No, the hypocrites in Matthew chapter 6, they were giving to the poor. They were praying and they were fasting. They were doing the righteousness, the works of righteousness, 
but for the wrong reasons. Doing the right thing for the wrong reason makes a person a hypocrite. They were doing these religious actions, giving and prayer and fasting, but they weren't doing them in order to draw near to the heart of God. That's not why they were doing them. They weren't doing them, they weren't giving to the poor in order to serve the common good in the name of God. They weren't uh, coming to the temple to pray in order to draw near to the heart of God. They weren't doing these things to glorify God or to worship God or to bring honor to God. They were doing them to be seen and praised by other people. Because in that society, what was accepted and what was expected was to be religious. And so they said, well, I want to be accept, expe- accepted and I, and I want to be popular. And so I'm going to do the things that make me popular in this society. They were doing the right things, but for the wrong reasons. And Jesus says, no, they're hypocrites. Parents, let me just, the number one thing that you can do to pass your faith on to your kids is not bring them to church and send them downstairs. Now, we have Lakeview Kids programming because we want to teach them at their level, and that's great. But that's a supplement at best. And kids can't live on supplements. You can give your kids all the vitamins you want, but if you don't feed them food, they're going to starve to death, right? So, Lakeview Kids is a supplement to their faith. The number one thing, youth group, kids, ministry, whatever, the number one thing that you can do to pass your faith onto your kids is to live your faith in front of them. Is to be the same Christian on Monday as you are on Sunday morning. It's to be the same Christian on Wednesday night as you were Wednesday morning at Bible study. It's to be the same person And when they see the authenticity of your faith, mom and dad don't just pray at church on Sunday. They also pray at home. And they don't just pray at supper time and repeat the same old prayer. They actually talk to God like they know him. Wow. When they see that, they will see the authenticity of your faith. That is the number one thing you can do to pass your faith onto your kids. It's to be, to have the same kind of faith in Christ and relationship with Christ at home, even when you think nobody's looking as you do at church when all your Christian friends are around you. So the first word in this text that we want to look at is hypocrites. The next one is reward. Now, before we read through the passage and talk about these rewards, the word reward is kind of a problematic word in our branch of Christianity. We think, uh, how in the world can we have rewards? Doesn't that counteract grace? How, how if, if, if I can work hard and get a reward from God, what, what does that do about grace? And Jesus says, if you do these things in secret, your father who sees in secret will reward you. Doesn't Jesus understand the gospel? You can't earn your salvation. Well, I have a hunch, a, a theory, a hypothesis. Jesus probably understands the gospel better than we do right? So let's just give him the benefit of the doubt. Jesus is the one who said, if you do these things, your father who sees in secret will reward you. So what is this reward? How do we reconcile that with the gospel? Well, reward does not mean salvation. Jesus is not teaching here, if you pray in secret and give in secret and fast in secret, then someday when you die, you'll earn the right to go to heaven. That's not what he's teaching. That's not what the Sermon on the Mount is about. He's not talking about salvation. In fact, we know that we cannot earn our salvation. Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God and not a result of works so that no one may boast, right? We cannot be saved through our good works. So when Jesus says, your father who sees in secret what you're doing will reward your, re- reward your behavior, he's not saying your reward is eternal life in heaven forever and ever and ever, right? That's not, he's not talking about salvation. Also, when he talks about rewards in Matthew chapter 6, he's not talking about health, wealth, and prosperity. He's not saying if you uh, pray in secret and give in secret and fast in secret, then you'll have more money and a bigger house and a nicer car and name brand clothes and you'll get that promotion and you won't get sick and you'll have your best life now. That's not what Jesus is teaching in Matthew chapter 6. In fact, in John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus said, I have told you all this that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows. Here on earth, you'll have many trials and sorrows. Not if you follow me and do all the right things, you'll you'll be richer and happier and healthier and wealthier. No, in this world, you'll have many trials and sorrows. But take heart, because I have overcome the world. So the rewards that Jesus is talking about, these rewards are not our salvation, and they're not health, wealth, and prosperity. Well, what is the reward? We're going to get into that. Jesus gives us three examples in Matthew chapter 6 of the kind of righteousness that promises a reward. We're going to bypass the Lord's Prayer, which is right in the middle of this chapter, because we're going to preach on that uh, specifically next Sunday. Um, So we're going to take these three uh, illustrations that Jesus gives and look at them this morning. First of all, he talks about giving to the needy. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 2, he says, When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. When God says in the Bible that we should give to the needy, what he's saying is, be free from the love of money. When he says we should give to those who are in need, what he's saying is, I don't want you to be enslaved by greed. I don't want your life to be controlled by materialism. I don't want you to, be, to live under the subjugation of, of greed and money and all the pressure that I want you to be free. See, God doesn't need our giving in order to meet the needs of the poor. God could snap his fingers and their houses would fill up with bread. So when he says give, it's not just for their benefit, it's also for ours. Because generosity is the antidote to greed. And if we want to break the chains of materialism and greed in our hearts, we, need to, we do that by being generous. But generosity is not just an action. It is an attitude of the heart. That's what Jesus is teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. It's not about how much you give. It's about the way you live that makes you generous. Generosity is who you are. It is an attitude of of the heart. Generous people are generous with all kinds of things, not just money. And generous people are generous even when no one else sees. And what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount is, God would rather you be a generous person, even if no one knows about it, than see you give big gifts publicly and yet be enslaved by greed in your heart. Because you can give big gifts and not be a generous person, still be enslaved by greed. And God says, no, I I want you to be free. I, I desire your freedom. 
The next example of the righteousness that promises a reward is prayer. Look at verse 5. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Prayer is about connecting with God at a heart level. That's what prayer is. That's what its purpose is. Connecting with God at a heart level. Prayer is not about getting God to do all the things we want. Prayer is not about impressing the other people in the prayer circle. Am I the closer? Am I the shot blocker? Prayer is not about impressing others when you pray. It's about connecting with God at a heart level. I'm doing premarital counseling with a couple right now. And uh, when I meet with them, before our counseling session is done, I have each of them pray out loud for the other. Because I want them to start practicing as a husband and wife, even before they're married, praying out loud for one another. And it's kind of awkward, and they feel a little silly, and they say, well, my prayers aren't very eloquent. And, And I say, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Prayer is not about being eloquent. It's not about being theological. It's not about using big words. It's, it's about connecting with God at a heart level, and you're doing that together. And that's what transforms your life. And if you do that as a husband and wife throughout your marriage, your marriage will be stronger. God's grace will fill your marriage. What Jesus is teaching about prayer in that little paragraph is that God would rather you have a deep and abiding relationship with him, even if no one knows about it, than to hear you pray the most eloquent and beautiful and theological prayers in front of other people and yet have no real connection to God yourself. God says, no, I don't care about the eloquence and the beauty of your prayers. I care about your heart. I want to know you. I want to pour my love into your life. I want to speak to you. I want to guide you. I want to direct you. I want to be there with you. And I would much rather have that, even if nobody else sees it, than you can stand up and say this beautiful, eloquent prayer, and yet don't really know me. The third example that Jesus gives is fasting. That's in verse 16. He says, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. The purpose of fasting is to remind yourself that there is more to life than consuming. And it's to exercise the spiritual muscle of self-control. There is, a, there is more to life than consuming, whether that's food or whether that's media or whether that's information or whatever it is. There's more to life than me getting what I want and consuming for myself. We fast to remind ourselves of that. We also fast to exercise that muscle of self-control. When we say no to things that aren't necessarily bad, like a bag of chips at 2 in the afternoon, We grow in our ability to say no to things that are bad, like pornography on my iPhone, right? When we say no to things that aren't necessarily evil in and of themselves, we are learning to control our bodies and say, I know you want that, but I'm going to say no because later when my body wants something that isn't holy, I have an easier time saying no. It exercises the spiritual muscle of self-control. 
It's not about showing others how pious and holy and disciplined we are. That's not why we fast. Jesus is teaching here in the Sermon on the Mount that God would rather you be the master of your own body, even if nobody knows it, than see you publicly proclaim your fasting and yet have no real self-control when you go home. We can walk around with a little ash cross on our foreheads and and talk about how uh, what we're giving up for Lent and how holy we are, and yet go home and have no self-control over what we consume, over what we look at. One beer leads to two, leads to six, leads to 10, leads to 15. Why? Because we don't have self-control. And it doesn't matter that we have a little cross on our forehead. And it doesn't matter that we've posted on our Instagram what we're giving up for Lent. If we don't actually have self-control, Jesus says, no, I want you to be free. God wants you to be free. He doesn't want you to be dominated by your flesh. He wants you to be the master of your own body. In all of these examples, giving, prayer, and fasting, what Jesus is teaching is this. It's more about being than doing. It's more about who you are than what you do. It's more about who you are than who others think you are. It's more about being than doing. If seeking a relationship with God is who you are, not just what you do, but who you are, this is the defining identity of my life, glorifying God, seeking God, being a child of God. That is who I am even when nobody else is around, then God promises a reward. And this is the reward. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 12. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Your father who sees in secret will reward you. What is the reward? It's himself. It's intimacy with God. It's a close relationship with him. You will seek him and find him. When you look, he'll be there. It's got to be who you are more than what you do. That's what he's teaching. That brings me to the third word in the sermon that we're going to look at, the word father. Uh, Jesus says this several times, but we'll put it up in Matthew chapter 6, verse 18. He says, your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, looking at that verse, who is it that gives the reward? You can, you can talk, that's okay. The father, right? I think it's really interesting that Jesus didn't say, and God who sees in secret will reward you. Now, he's talking about God, no doubt. But he doesn't say, God who sees in secret will reward you. And He doesn't even say, the Father will reward you. He says, your Father will reward you. It's not just that God is some far off uh, heavenly being sitting up in heaven watching uh, us play out like like he's watching a a Minecraft world or something like that and interfering every now and again. And, and he's not some, uh, somebody else's father. He's not just some random or generic father figure. No, Jesus is saying that God is your father, my father, our father. And God is a loving father. He's not an emotionally distant father. He's not an, an absent father. He's not a a harsh and strict and stern father. He's not the kind of father that will snap at you when you interrupt him while he's painting in the basement. That's me, right? God's not that kind of father. God is a 
intimate and personal and loving father. He's the kind of father that will go out and climb a tree with you. He's the kind of father that will get down in the dirt and play trucks with you or sit around a table and have a tea party with your dolls, whichever one is more your style. Right? God's the kind of father that will take you fishing and throw a baseball with you in the backyard or shoot hoops with you in the driveway. He is a loving and intimate father. When, when, when you have a, a night terrors, God will sit by your bed and sing you to sleep. He's the kind of father that will go through the, the hard times and the good times with you, and he will never leave you, and he will never forsake you because he's a loving father, and he is delighted to love you. He is excited to be your dad and to have you be his kid. And he loves you and he delights in you. And there's nothing that brings him more joy than seeing your face. And he says, look, I want to have a relationship with you. You've got to do more than just perform a bunch of religious actions in front of other people so they think you're holy. I want you to chase after me even when nobody else is around because I'm a loving father and I want to be your father. This idea of God as father is what makes Jesus's next words in the Sermon on the Mount so poignant and so powerful. Verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I want to close this morning by asking, what do you treasure? What do you treasure? Why are you coming to church? Why do you do the things? Why are you a Christian? What is the purpose? What is the reason? Are you doing these to be seen by others because it's expected in the circles that you run in? Or are you treasuring the Father's heart? Because those two will, are different trajectories in life. When I was 19 years old, most of you have probably heard my testimony. I was raised in a Christian home. I received Christ when I was seven years old. But later, when I was 19, I was sitting on a Saturday night. My roommate had gone home for the weekend, and I was in my dorm room by myself. And God spoke to me very clearly. He put a thought in my mind, and, the, and it was this. What would you do if both your parents died tonight? Would I still serve God if both my parents were gone? Here I am, 19 years old, starting to be an adult, figuring out what, uh, what I believe, what I value. And God says, why are you serving me? Is it because you're borrowing your parents' faith? What if they were dead? Would you still go to church? Would you still read your Bible? Would you still pray? Would you still serve me? And I realized I have to decide, am I going to own the faith for myself or am I going to keep borrowing my parents' faith? And somebody told me after the first service, God doesn't have any grandchildren. He's not grandfather, he's father. And we each have to make our own decision about what we are going to do. And I realized in that moment, I wanted to serve God even if nobody else was around. He's my father. And that's the question that he's asking all of you this morning. What do you treasure? The thoughts and opinions and approval of others? Things of earth, health, wealth, prosperity, status, popularity, likes, follows? Or do you treasure hearing the Father say, well done, good 
and faithful servant. He wants to be your father. In order to be his child, you just have to say, I'm turning away from that way of life, and I am now following Christ. And through Jesus and the Holy Spirit living in me, I am born again as a child, a son, or a daughter of God. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, your word. Thank you for being that loving Father. Thank you that you have reached out to reconcile us. We have all, like sheep, wandered away from you, gone astray, and yet you came and you rescued us by sending Jesus Christ to die on the cross in our place for our sin. And now you say, come unto me and become my son or my daughter so that I can love you. Lord, I pray that you would speak to the hearts of every person that's here and that you would draw us to your heart. In Jesus' name, amen.